At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is M.I.P. With Massimella Matsumal. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Folks, it is a misnomer that Carter G. Woodson chose the shortest month of the year for it to stop there. He actually said we should celebrate Black History 365 days a year. But February would be the culminating month because of the birthdays of both Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. But we are to practice Black History Month every single month of the year. We invite you all to uh, go to your podcast app and listen to every show we did every day during Black History Month. And yesterday, we even, as many of you have asked for, we even provided a bibliography, a book list because uh, people always want to know what to read and what to follow up with. So whether it's Dr. John Henry Clark or Dr. Yosef Ben-Yakinen or Dr. Sharshi McIntyre or Dr. Asa Hilliard or Dr. Ivan Van Sertima, Dr. Francis Cress Wellsing, there's so much to be read. John G. Jackson, Charles Finch, read, read, read. Um, we know that our history and our teaching of history is under assault right now. It was against the law to learn to read and they're trying to put that in place again in terms of what's taught in our schools. So it's important that we have this bit of black history today and a topic that is close to uh, my heart. And I know many of yours, you all know I'm a Hoya. And for those of you who even are not Hoyas, this story about the GU 272, 272 enslaved human beings, enslaved African people, who were sold in the 1800s to keep the university afloat, uh, sold by the Jesuits to keep it alive. We've heard of the history of the relationship many institutions of higher learning have had with enslavement. This is Georgetown's um, and we ought to talk about that. We ought to get that out there. And I would even say, this is me talking, not my guess. This individual is at, that's at the uh, law school who's been hired uh, who has made some uh, racial or racist inflammatory statements, who is under review. Uh, to me, it's all the more reason why we need to be reminded about race, why we need to be sensitive about race, why we need to be aware in terms of diversity. Uh, and this is a story that is right on the campus of Georgetown University. So I have three very special guests with me, these individuals, let me just give you a little bit of the, the primer and then we'll elaborate. Uh, the three of these good folk are cousins and each of them, they are all descendants of the children of Harry Matthias Mahoney, who was the cook and housekeeper at the Jesuit house at St. Inigo's plantation. Am I pronouncing that correct, Melly? Inigo's, yeah. St. Inigo's plantation. Some of y'all in Maryland have heard of St. Inigo's. Um, the Jesuit house is St. Inigo's plantation in St. Mary's County, Maryland. Harry, this cook, Harry Matthias Mahoney, saved, protected the Jesuits' money, their coffers, during a raid by the British in the War of 1812. That's what we did. You know, we took care of folk. We rescued the folk, even folk we worked for and mistreated us. That's what he did. And then in 1838, just over 20 some odd years later, um, the Jesuits sold his children. And these three are descendants of those children. We are honored to have with us for our sacred ancestral memory for us all. Uh, Lynn Nehemiah, Jeremy Alexander, and 
Melisande Short Cologne. Welcome to each of you. Thank you, Reverend Mark. It's great to be here. And it's great to, to have you here. Melly, I'll, I'll begin with you. Mm -hmm. I, I gave a bit of the story, but I'll throw it to you first to kind of expand on the story about um, Harry Matthias Mahoney mm -hmm. and you all's direct line to him. Right. Um, one of the things that we don't talk about when we discuss the GU-272 is beyond the 1838 sale. What happened before that? And before that, the families who were sold in 1838 were enslaved by the Jesuits for decades before that. Um, and their labor contributed to the funds that were used to purchase the land where Georgetown is, not just to save the Jesuits in 1838 after an international economic downturn. So Harry saved the, the, the money. The British were sacking the coast of Maryland, they were posted up on St. George's Island in the Chesapeake Bay, and they raided up and down the coastline. Um, and they would hit the Jesuits, steal the chickens, steal whatever they could, go back to the island. So this particular raid, um, Harry took the money and the girls. And he went off into the woods for a couple of days and the Jesuits and everybody who was on the plantation was lamenting that they'd lost everything. They'd lost the sacraments. Uh, the British took their cow, their chickens, their girls, their money, everything. But a few days later, here comes Harry with the money and the girls. And the Jesuits are overjoyed. They have their money, they can go on with their mission. Um, and they say to Harry and his wife, we'll never sell you. You will always be with us. You are our family. You are our sisters, our brothers, our children in Christ. You're our family. And then 1838 comes around, things are going on, there's discussion, and the Jesuits, in a very bold move in the midst of uh, a lot of things that are going on, secretly sell 272 people and send them to Louisiana. Of those families who were sent to Louisiana, one family, one, one child was Jeremy's great-grandmother. Another child was my great-grandfather. Now, they were young adults um, who had children. And then Louisa Mahoney was also sold, but one of the Jesuit priests, warned she and her mother of the impending sale and they ran off into the woods and they hid. They came back after a couple of weeks and Father Carberry, who had warned them, also um, went to bat, I guess, for Louisa and convinced the Jesuits to buy her back. So of all of uh, the children who were sold of Harry Matthias Mahoney, the only one who stayed was Louisa. And up until emancipation, Louisa still lived, and her family and her children still lived on St. Indigo's. And when the Jesuits moved, 
from St. Indigo's to Woodstock, Louisa and her family went with them. So when she died, after spending her whole life with the Jesuits, there was a big write-up in the paper and a huge funeral because of Louisa's lifelong dedication to the Jesuits. So here we are. Um, Jeremy and I are descendants of children who were sold. Lynn is descended from Louisa who stayed. More MIP after this message. Asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance? Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use Geico mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to Geico becomes an easy choice. Switch to Today and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. And Louisa was the one that actually hid Correct. To, to avoid... Yeah. Um, the cell. Lynn, let's let's pick it up, up there. How much do we know about the circumstances of her hiding? She was warned or, or what? She was warned by Father Carberry. And I believe it was probably um, as a result of the promise that was made to the family, um, you know, after uh, after Harry had saved the Jesuit treasury. And um, she was the youngest of the children. She didn't have any any children of her own. She was unmarried. And uh, her, her parents were elderly. And both of her parents, Harry and uh, Anna, was Harry's wife, um, were listed on the sale docket. But neither one of them, none of them ended up in Louisiana. So my thought is that um, Louisa probably, uh, you know, was, was allowed to stay behind to care for her uh, elderly parents. Um, and so she remained uh, at St. Inigo's and subsequently got married uh, to a free man by the name of Alex Mason and had, um, I think uh, they had seven children. What's really sad, and I was really reflecting about this today, I'd never really sat with it, but Alex Mason, her husband, who was free, um, was brutally murdered <laughs> in um, 1861, two years before the Civil War. He was walking between St. Inigo's Plantation and um, St. Mary's City and was, a, and, and was attacked with an axe. <laughs> and um, this was written about actually also in Luisa's obituary. Um, and, you know, uh, the person who, the, the father, the priest who wrote the obituary says that he was on the grand jury. And his comment was that I, you know, that this was an honest man, you know, this was a, a tragic and there was no, no circumstance that he could imagine that would have, have um, caused somebody to want to murder him. But we all know that, again, the, you know, likely the, um, the environment of the times, this was two years before the Civil War. So the assumption is that it was a racially motivated crime. You know, somebody probably didn't like the fact that this was a free man you know, um, so it's, it's just interesting, you know, to, to think that um, even then, you know, these kinds of things were going on. And just for me, I think really having to sit with, you know, thinking about the fact that my, what, th uh, fourth great grandparent was brutally mm -hmm. murdered at the hands of some, you know, white racist um, and just, you know, the trauma of that. The impact of on the family, of, you know, on leaving a, a, um, Louisa with you know seven young children, 
And just the generational trauma that occurs as a result of that, that in, you know, we don't even know where that comes from. So I know that that's a history that many people share, you know, and um, yeah, it's just, these are things, these, this is why we do need to, as much as we can pursue our history and get those details and try to find out the story so that we can understand some of the circumstances of how we came to be both from a positive perspective, but even some of the, the challenges that we face um, with regard to healing. Yeah. And, and, the, and the transgenerational trauma, that's a good point. I want to come back to that, but Jeremy, let me, let me bring you in. You like um, your cousin, Melly, your ancestor was one of the ones who was sold, correct? That is correct. So uh, the, let me just start this. My, my wife, Leslie, started a tree on Ancestry.com uh, back in 2008 when our son Jesse was born just to give him some history of the family. In 2014, we took the DNA test provided by Ancestry. And that became a changing factor for us because that gave us the ability to go back further than our great grandparents. So the way I wound up getting connected into the GU 272 and the history is that um, because I work at Georgetown University, I was sitting watching in September 2016, the apology that was given. And I was sitting in my office watching online and they said, we have descendants here. And they were saying that they were sorry about the enslavement of their ancestors. And I just thought that is amazing. I never thought I'd ever see anything like that. Then through the email system with an ancestry, I received a message from Melissa Kemp, who's our cousin, who said that my dad's DNA matched with her family's DNA. And so it matches clearly all of our DNA matched up and lined up from my dad's side. And she wanted to go into this whole history about the GU-272. And I had to stop her and tell her that I actually worked at the university. You know, I was working for the, you know, I work at the university. Mm -hmm. And so then everything just kind of snowballed. But it turns out that it was Anna Mahoney and she was married to an Arnold Jones. And Arnold actually ran away a few years before the sale actually happened. So Anna and her son Arnold Henry Jones Jr. and her daughter, Louisa Jones, are all listed on the Catherine Jackson. That's the ship, uh, the ship's manifest going to Louisiana. And we're able to track this because in 2018, all of us went down to Louisiana and we were in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, in Ascension Parish and went to the courthouse there. And we were able to find in the records Anna, Anna Mahoney and her children, Arnold and Louisa, listed there as recorded as property for Henry Johnson, who was one of the two people that bought the enslaved people, bought the family. So it's, it's just been an, um, an amazing trip because we we're able to track this from 1838 to this sale to the other descendants getting to my dad, who was born in Mississippi, to him moving back, moving up to Illinois, where I was born in Chicago. And then my family, my wife and I moved to Maryland back in 2005. It's like 167 years later, we've come back and had no idea that this is where it all started. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's just really, really amazing from that, from that perspective. That is amazing. More MIP after this message. So I want to just be sure I'm following the, the geography too. Um, Louisiana. Now, is that where did did everyone did did all of those souls go to Louisiana? That is Nelly? correct. Okay. In that sale. In yeah. that particular sale. Yeah. All right. So Louisiana. So so then from there, people obviously move around and branch out. Do we know after Louisiana whether any more of the 272 were sold at other times or at later and subsequent in sales? There was a sale in Louisiana, I think in 1856. Um, what we do know 
is that from that sale, um, people were dispersed to other places. My um, three times, my four times, five times great grand, no, four times great grandmother Harriet was sold in 1856 to a woman in New Orleans. She and her youngest child, Angelina, who was born in Louisiana, were sold. At the time of the sale, she had a one-year-old baby who was sold with her. And my grandmother used to talk about um, this sale. Um, and that's Harriet Queen. She had a one-year-old baby. And her baby's name was James Francis Queen. The father of her children were also was also a free man. Um, and she was sold. Her youngest child, James Francis, dropped the queen name. So he became James Francis. We have identified his descendants today. Um, yes, there were other sales. People were dispersed. Henry Johnson, who was one of the buyers in Louisiana, was originally from Virginia. He was also one of the benefactors of um, the University of the South that was built in 1859. Um, he mortgaged members of the Mahoney family to give $40,000 to start the University of the South. The people stayed mainly in Louisiana because the final payment on the, on the families that were sold in 1838 wasn't made until 27 years later when the Civil War was going on. So you can't sell something that you don't own outright. So the families in Louisiana remained in possession of the Jesuits and the people in Louisiana for 27 years. 314 people were actually sold in 1838 because mothers were pregnant, babies weren't counted, young children weren't counted. So the total number of the sale has sort of been clearly defined now at 314 people. The oldest person who was sold to Louisiana was 45 years old. The youngest person was in utero. At the end of the Civil War, when the census was taken in Louisiana, we have identified that there were 96 people still alive from those 314 people sold in 1838. What was, what was that year again, that census, what year? Um, that was right after the Civil War. Just so you mentioned that number, do we know how many, do we have a total number of the surviving descendants today of the 272? Do you all, I mean, it's probably, have, I don't know how possible it is to get that, but do you have an idea? We have, we have over 10,000 identified descendants. But are they living? Not everybody. Um, about half and half. You know, okay. half of the people are dead, the oldest, the, the, the last person to die of the 1838 sale died in 1925. Mm. She was in utero mm. at the time of the sale. So she was conceived in Maryland, sold, conceived in Maryland as a slave. Right. Old in utero, shipped down to Louisiana, born in utero, I mean, born in Louisiana, 
and then lived through enslavement, through the Civil War, through Reconstruction, and into Jim Crow, 1925. What was her name? When people say this was ages ago, oh. I we are the fourth generation out of slavery. My grandmother was the second. She was delivered into this world by hands that had been born in Maryland. Her great-grandmother was 16 years old, 17 years old, when she was sold in 1838. Those were the hands that brought my grandmother into this world. Lynn, I was going to ask you something, but you wanted to, I think, go ahead, jump in. I I just wanted to say, um, Melly, I just love the way you're bringing it home. Because I think that as we really discover our history and connect the dots and know the names, it really makes you realize how close it is. I mean, you know, before, I mean, before I never, I never really realized how close it was. <laughs> but, you know, when you discover this, it's like, yeah, it's, it's just yesterday, really. Right. It's just well, yesterday. One other thing, when you asked about the descendants uh, what we found because of the DNA test, I've had pe people all over the place reach out. And one particular person reached out to me from New Zealand mm -hmm. and a cousin who left Mississippi to go play in a band in London, fell in love there. Uh, and his wife, it was from New Zealand. So I've stayed in touch with this family. We actually got to meet. We, we, we met in New York city a few years ago, just to, you know, say hello and reconnect that side of the, the family. And it was just really interesting. There's a cousin serving in the U.S. military okay. in uh, Korea, you know, so she's based over there and she flew all the way to Louisiana in 2018 to be with us. And she brought her son with him. You know, it's we're all over this world. Yeah. And we have also through DNA connected to um, people in um, Liberia, uh, some in Ghana, uh, and different parts of the West Coast, because there were also individuals who were owned, uh, enslaved, and perhaps freed, um, who were sent to Liberia in as part of the colonization society. So there's a place in Liberia um, that's called um, St. Mary's County. And it is populated by people who, black people who went from Maryland to Liberia. I think it's Liberia. Um, during the colonization period, um, because the very same families, including the Jesuits, who were part of the network of, of family enslavers and people in the government and of influence and power here in Maryland, were the same people, um, Roger Tawney, Francis Scott Key, who were involved in the creation of the American or Maryland Colonization Society. So we also have descendants of Jesuit and Catholic enslavement here in Maryland, and we are connected to people in West Africa who were repatriated. And all of this information, of course, individuals are doing a tremendous amount of family genealogical research, but the Georgetown Memory Project has compiled information on 10,000, basically 10,000 descendants of those families. 
Talk to us, uh, Lynn. I'll come back to you. How, and obviously you all have done DNA research, done Ancestry.com. Lynn, you've done that as well, I take it. Um, so talk to us about how the, the Georgetown connection came, because we're just learning about Georgetown in this. Lynn, had you already begun to research your genealogy, come across some of this? And, and I mean, when did, when did the Georgetown, the dot connect to Georgetown? So for me, you know, I, I was born in Baltimore and my grandmother was Catholic um, and I knew she was from Woodstock and that's kind of all I knew. And in 2017, I told my daughter that I would like to have a DNA test for Christmas. And so she, um, you know, so I took the test. She got it for me. I took the test. And in May, I think it was actually Mother's Day, I found out I got my results and when I went online, I started looking at the results and seeing, you know, looking at various family trees and seeing different connections. And I kept seeing the, the phrase Georgetown Memory Project. And I said to myself, huh, this is interesting. So I started doing some research because I was connecting to people that had the Georgetown Memory Project um, name underneath. So turns out that, um, you know, I, I reached out to one of the genealogists in charge of the Memory Project and she uh, it confirmed that I was connecting to people that had been identified as those that were part of the two, the, um, the sale, the, 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 the 200 of the 272. Now we know it to be 314, but it's so interesting because even for me, kind of similar to Jeremy, I knew about the sale and I, you know, and I, and I knew that my family was from St. Mary's County, but I never myself put myself, knew that I was connected to that or that I had, family that had been owned by the Jesuits. Um, so it was, it was just an amazing uh, discovery. And um, as a result of that, I think the day after I found out somehow my name, uh, I guess the genealogist shared my name with a Washington Post reporter. And so he was just coincidentally was doing a story like that was to come out that week. And as a result of that, I connected with Jeremy and and I and Melly and so we came together and it's just been just a you know just a remarkable reunion for us because truly we are family and for us to come back full circle after you know three generations you know I, mean, I just know that our ancestors are really just <laughs> overjoyed overjoyed we've come together and you know in so many different ways um and so many different projects and, and it's like they're leading us every step of the way every step of the way it's just incredible and, <laughs> and it's just it's been powerful to me because of identity too just like again go, going back to what that means to be connected you know to know your roots and uh for me i didn't have that growing up because i had moved to, to texas and grew out grew up without family so this has just been powerful for me and and jeremy obviously an endless amount of possibilities in terms of research information um what what do you see going forward in terms of the future in terms of this this information i imagine you think about even more to discover and explore don't you oh we're always doing that I mean, because of the DNA, I'm always getting hits, you know, of people coming up and we're trying to figure out how related. Uh, I think some of the, the difficult parts are when you even enc I've encountered people who are adopted. They have, you know, no connection whatsoever to their biological parents. And we're trying to discover. And when I'm looking at how they are matching to me and they're matching to my dad, I'm like, you know, you would probably also wind up in this group of the GU-272, and I've encouraged them to reach out to genealogists. But there are so many branches within the families that I still haven't flushed out those children. It's like we've, over the last few months, I'm going to tell I'll share this interesting story. I found a letter as I was going through some of my mom's things that my dad got from a cousin in the late 90s talking about this history, but none of us, my dad, no one talked about it. My dad was Arnold Alexander. And he, um, we had this letter and it was about a, a cousin who was a mother superior. And I'm like, what in the world? And I started looking into this because the, the person who wrote it was, um, was a nun. 
And I just had to figure out what's going on and what the connection was. And it was this, um, uh, an order of nuns based out of New Orleans of black nuns. And we were able to find out eventually that Anna Mahoney's son, Arnold Jones Jr., he married a Christina West, who also came from one of the other plantations in Maryland. And that's who I come down from. But Arnold had another family that was also in Donaldsonville. And that's where this nun comes down from. But it's like I had to do all this research and try to figure this out and look at other people's trees on Ancestry to make this connection. But it's amazing that we're constantly finding new information out little by little over time. And it's, it's, it's just really amazing. It's fulfilling. I mean, and, and the mere fact that we're doing this now for our son, Jesse, you know, when, when he has a ham, a family project, like how far back do you want to go? I mean, how far back? I mean, he can go back now. He can go back many generations. You know, we trace everything back to a woman named Ann Joyce. And that's going back. I counted like 10 generations, you know, to reach me to get to her coming in the late 1600s uh, from Barbados by way of England to the third Lord Baltimore, uh, the Calvert family here in Maryland. So and we have this on our family trees. It's all mapped out and all the relationships to all the cousins. And we matched up with. For example, uh, Darnall Hall on campus, we match the Darnall families. We match to the Carroll's families as cousins. And when I'm saying Carroll's, I'm talking about John Carroll, the first Archbishop of the United States. And we're finding all of this through DNA. That's and correct. Like, and, we're, and we're comparing. And we're, so we're able to see the connections. Let me just apologize to the audience when my mic is open. You might hear some drilling. They're working on the roof of my building. I apologize. Back up for a minute, Jeremy. We need to rewind that. Carol, say that. Tell me that connection again. Archbishop John Carroll. That is correct. Who's the founder of Georgetown College, which is now Georgetown University, the archbishop, the first archbishop in the United States. We have been able to map out on our family trees that he is a distant cousin to us coming down with the relationship of the Darnalls, which there's the Darnall Hall on campus. So we have those DNA matches to these families as well. Wow. Are, are any of Carol's people still around who, who claim descendancy from I him? I haven't talked yeah. to any of them, but. There are Carol's in the database for the Georgetown Memory Project. There are people in Louisiana whose last name is Carol. So my great-grandmother, greatest great-grandmother, um, Mary Queen, arrived here in 1715. James Carroll bought her indenture for 35 pounds of tobacco. He wrote it in his book. Amazing. When James Carroll died, he was an Irish immigrant who was a planter, a businessman, amassed large, large, large holdings of property and, and including people in Maryland. When he died, he left his wealth to the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. That included the land and the people mm -hmm. that he owned. He was single. He was a cousin to John Carroll, um, the Charles Carroll, the signer of the Declaration of Independence. The enslaved families of Maryland and the founding families of Maryland are connected through blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> our blood, our sweat, and mainly our tears. And one of the things that comes into the discussion of critical race theory and the myth busting in America is also 
has also has a component of critical rape theory. Mm. Because our Carol ancestors and our Darnall ancestors and our Neil connections are all through men who raped black women or had sex with black with women who they had power and control over and those women had no particular agency. And Joyce worked out her indenture when her indenture was complete. Her indenture freedom papers were torn up. She and her children were put in jail. And when she came out of jail, she and her children were slaves for life. Here in Maryland and Virginia, the law was set that any child born from a black woman was slave for life. So slavery was built in the wombs of black women in Virginia and Maryland. Did you just say, did you just coin a new phrase here on my show, critical rape theory? Is that what she just did, Lynn? Yes, she did. <laughs> no, you're something else. You're something else. Critical rape theory. No, I no, that's that's very that's quite apropos. Mel, just while you have the floor though, so walk us through again what they did with the money and what structures, what land exists on that campus I was just on over the weekend that was financed by the sale of your enslaved ancestors? Well, um, the, the Jesuit residence, which is now Isaac Hawkins Hall, was completed. The um, observatory, at the back of the campus was financed by funds from the sale. It was completed in 1844. Enslaved people who lived up on the hill, there was a farm back there and they all lived back there and they built the observatory. So that money came from the 1838 sale. Also money from the 1838 sale went to the Archdiocese of Baltimore, who also had a claim on the enslaved people who were sold. So money from that sale was also used to build Loyola of Maryland in Baltimore. The money was used to save the Maryland Jesuits, and then to fuel the expansion of the edifice of Jesuit education as it moved west mm -hmm. through St. Louis and all points beyond. Um, it, it, Lynn, I want to ask you one question real quick, though. I want to go back to your great, 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 great grandmother. Louisa Mahoney. And again, folks, she is one who hid to avoid sale. You mentioned her husband's murder or, I mean, probably a lynching. Um, I'm just curious if, if, and considering that time and what was going on and considering um, her savvy as one who basically I mean, she went, I mean, for all intents and purposes, she made an underground railroad move, right? I mean, she hid and was not, so So she kind of avoided that. Do we have any evidence that Louisa or her husband might have been involved in the, the abolition or escape or hiding of other enslaved people that might have made him a target? I, uh, you know, that's a good question. I do know that um, it's interesting, and it's this has been a mystery that I've been wanting to solve but we do have a um another person that we connected with through dna um who is a descendant of a of a uh, charles mahoney who ended up in boston 
in the eight, in the early 1800s. And subsequently, um, you know, there were some Mahonies that came out of that line, one of whom became the first black nurse. And again, this is something that we found right. out through, uh, through DNA connections. And so there, so my, you know, I believe that he escaped. I believe actually that he was a child of, that he was a, 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 a sibling of Louisa and, and Anna and, um, and Robert Mahoney. And I believe that he escaped. So I, and, and there is talk about other um, Mahoney family members that escaped to Philadelphia. And some of the descendants of, uh, I'm sorry, some of the children of Louisa actually ended up um, after slavery moving to Philadelphia. And it's theorized mm -hmm. that they joined people that were you know, that had escaped and, you know, free that, that had escaped to uh, Philadelphia in that area. So it's quite likely that that is the case that she, you know, that there was some connection and some um, uh, access and participation in the railroad. Can I say too, um, the Mahoney's and the Queens were sort of notorious <laughs> in Maryland because going back to 1794, the Queens and the Mahoney's both brought suits against Jesuit priests who owned them. And there was a case, Charles Mahoney sued John Ashton, who is my paternal rapist great-grandfather, um, for his freedom. It was a court case that went on 12 years. We have 12 years of slave. We also have 12 years of court case that nobody knows about. But the court case went back and forth in Annapolis, Maryland over the course of 12 years with Charles Mahoney being freed, the case being overturned, going back to court again, um, suing for freedom again, the case being overturned. The, the ruling in the first case was Charles Mahoney is a free man. And there was so much going on in the courts of Maryland that everybody knew about it. Enslaved people knew about it. Slave owners knew about it middle of the road, didn't own nothing, and nobody people in Maryland knew about it because it was the biggest thing going on in, in Maryland slavery. At the end of the court case, the Carrolls freed their enslaved people. There were Mahoney's who were freed, there were queens who were freed. There were Hawkinses who were freed because it was beginning to be a really bad look to enslave people. I, I want to be mindful of everyone's time quickly. Since we're talking about the university, and I want to go to what the university is or is not doing right now with regards to this. The... Um, um, my mentor, Coach Thompson, Mel, there's some evidence that he him, and his family are descendants of this 272 or now 314. Right. Can you expand on that? Um, well, in Southern Maryland, in St. Mary's Parish, uh, in St. Mary's County, there is are many, many, many um, Black Thompsons and there are White Thompsons. Um, Coach John was raised in DC when his family moved up from Southern Maryland. And the, the Georgetown Memory Project um, basically started this, not with DNA, but with a paper trail, just going through the paperwork. And um, the Georgetown Memory Project has compiled um, 
a book on John Thompson's family. I, I'm pretty sure he was aware of it and had this information um, long before he died, but chose not to, you know, for that to be a part of what was going on with him at the time. But um, the family is related to enslaver families, enslaved families and enslaver families in Southern Maryland. Do we know anything about, we know Father Healy was, was black. That wasn't popularly known. That was kept a secret. I believe he was passing. It, it, does he have a place in any of this? Do, do we know? Not really. He's from someplace else. He's from and Georgia. He, yeah. And George he Jeremy. was there okay. until like 1870s. And it's not so much well, that he was passing. His father sent his children away to be white. They didn't grow up with their enslaved mother. They inherited their father's land and enslaved people when he died. Maybe their mom, too. I don't know. Um, but Patrick Healy was sent away. And he was put in, and, and his brother and his sister and Patrick were put into the care of the Catholics and the Jesuits because they, as, as people who were passing or set on that path to pass, they could never have no kids. Because mm. grandma was going to pop up. <laughs> <laughs> Mel, you a mess. So, so, so what is the university doing? And, and full disclosure, uh, Melisande and Jeremy, um, uh, both work for the university. They are not here in that capacity, but we just want to, you know, we want to be uh, uh, clear to everyone. Um, but what is the university doing, if anything, to address this in whatever way? I know there was sort of a vote and a referendum taken several years ago. Either Mel or Jeremy, can either of you address any of that? Yeah, um, you know, the university is not very forthright with what they've done with what they're doing um, in terms of progress. Jack DeJoya said a thing five years ago and they're working on it. So the vote and what was the vote? The vote was it not the students took a vote. Is that is that it accurate? Was a vote, yes, it was a vote to do a fee on to add a fee to all the undergraduate students. Uh, so they can collect money to help the descendants. That's what they voted for, and the student body uh, passed that vote. Uh, but then it just it, it it didn't get final approval by the university because they had final approval when they're implementing that as a policy change on campus. And, okay, I, I I got it, and. So nothing yet from that. No, um, they're selling world's finest chocolate. That's that's still say that again. They're selling world's finest chocolate. <laughs> it's coming around. What what, what do you mean? It, it... You know, it is. Uh, they have to raise the money. The mm. students were going to go into their pockets and raise their tuition by fifty-two dollars a year and say, here's this money, Georgetown, manage it, set this up. We believe that you guys have the capability to do that. Um, but the university said, no, we don't have the capability to do that. We can't do that, and we won't do that. But what we will do is raise the five, the $400,000 that the students had committed per year to come from their pockets. We're going to go out and we're going to raise that money and we might raise a little bit more. Who knows? Um, so we don't know where the raising of that money is right no, now. We, we've kind of heard a few rumblings that the process is um, moving forward, 
but it has been COVID. So, you know. Lynn, what would you like to see? I kind of give you the last word as we're running out of time. If, If you had a wish, what would you like to see the university do? Uh, well, I definitely think a commitment, you know, to anybody who wants to come to Georgetown that that they that they should have access. Um, I'd like to see them make an investment, you know, in our community um, to be able to provide resources for those in need, whether it be early childhood education or, um, you know, uh, resources for um, uh, seniors or, you know, those who are, have a serious need, but really also acknowledging acknowledging what our ancestors did for them, not just, you know, blunt, you know, blanket, but like actually names, you know, and doing it on a regular basis. Because again, I think that it's important that, that they also help us to find one another, to help us to connect with one another. Because I think, you know, uh, us having that identity piece in place and being reconciled is, is extremely important. You all are incredible. Uh, I'd, I'd be remiss. As I have said, Melly, Melly is also uh, uh, doing. I mean, she's a creative artist, and she's writing and performing. Um, Lynn mentioned the trauma. I mean, everything we can do to promote discovery, learning, understanding, and dramatization of our stories is important. A uh, shameless plug. You all mentioned Ancestry.com. I'm affiliated with AfricanAncestry.com. And so at some point, those of you who, who are even listening, as you know, you've heard us talk about it. You, If you do the DNA through AfricanAncestry.com, you can pretty much pinpoint the African ethnic group of, of your ancestors in Africa, uh, which actually transcends the national colonized boundaries. So we're, we're on this quest, y'all. Um, and this family is is on this quest and uh, is inspirational. I'm talking about y'all's family. I don't know why that's making me emotional. Um, but the restoration of our memory and history is so important at, at a university that many of us still love. As Melly said, it was built with our blood, sweat and tears, our ancestors. Uh, and then it continued to be built through the toil of another black man who obviously also was a descendant whom we all admired, Coach Thompson. And and so university, this is me talking. This is not Mel or Jeremy or Lynn. You know, y'all need to think about this uh, Ilya Shapiro dude. That goes against, that would set us back if he would remain at Georgetown, what he said about black women and black women Supreme Court nominees, that would set us back from any progress we're making in terms of repair when it comes to this 272 or this 314. That's an interesting number too, Mel. That's pi, 314. Mm-hmm. We ought to break that down. We can break that down some more. We can get into this. Um, uh, we also made breaking news history today. Uh, uh, Mel has, Melly has scored, uh, uh, coined a new term, critical rape theory, uh, of course, applicable to our ancestors. Um, uh, it's an honor to speak with all of you. It's an honor for you to spend this time and hopefully this won't be the last time we talk. Um, folks they even told me cause my last name is Thompson. I might be in the family too. So they, they <laughs> trying to adopt me. So I got to get into that and see what's up with that. Yes. Um, coach Thompson and I never considered us being by bi- the two of us being biologically related, but we were so spiritually related and, and we were mentored, um, by uh, the same person in, in some respects, Dr. Nita Hughes. But um, the three of you are incredible and inspiration. And, and folks, I hope it's an inspiration to, to all of you um, as we get back out this summer, surviving COVID. You know, let's not just have family reunions where we eat, but family reunions where we're doing DNA research and finding out our tree and making this connection in terms of who we are and who our ancestors were. We don't say slaves anymore. We say enslaved people because they were all human beings. And these were the human beings. These are the descendants of the human beings that made Georgetown University what it is now and what it is today. Everybody ought to keep that in mind. Thank you all for joining us here. Jeremy, Lynn, Melisande, God bless you all, okay? 
God bless you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so very much for having us. This was awesome. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.